Well, if you turn to Lamentations 3. And I want to read just, I mean, I really need to maybe just read verses 19 through 27, which is really what we're focusing on, but I want to start at the beginning of chapter 3 anyway and just spend the time to give an idea of what this guy is facing and where he's coming from. And so would you stand as I read scripture? Everything we read here is not just the writing of man, right? It is, it is written as men were moved upon by the Holy Spirit, is how Peter speaks of it. And so even the lament, even the complaint to God written by the Holy Spirit, by, we think, the hand of Jeremiah for our good and for our joy, even amid sadness. Here's what he says. I am the man who has seen affliction. Now feel the pain in this guy's voice. I'm the man who's seen affliction. Under the rod of his wrath, he's driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He's made my flesh and my skin waste away. He's broken my bones. He's besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He's made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He's walled me about so that I can't escape. He's made my chains heavy. Though I call and I cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He's blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He's made my paths crooked. He's a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He's made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver, and I've become the laughingstock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He's made my teeth grind on gravel. He made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction, my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it, and it's bowed down within me. But, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my God, or says my soul. Therefore, I will have hope in him. The Lord's good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord, and it's good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. This is the word of God for us this morning. You can be seated. Well, there's not one person from any tribe, any tongue, any language who relishes physical, mental, emotional, depressive suffering in this life or the confusing suffering of grief and the loss of someone who you love dearly. Yet amid the common sufferings of man and our guttural reactions to that suffering stands our belief in God. We've been through the We Believe series recently. 
I'm trying to put action to that by looking this morning at what it means to connect what we believe with a life of suffering. Should our responses to suffering and grief be informed by our beliefs? Absolutely, they will. They just, they will. They will be informed by our beliefs. Not perfectly, but truly believing that which we say we believe will cause us to endure suffering and grief in a different manner than those who do not believe what we believe. And the book of Lamentations will teach us how I wish that we could just take time over a month or so, and we will one day, but just to slowly go through Lamentations. Um, it is a, it's a sad book. Very difficult. Contains a whole series of laments of people who have been under the oppression of the Babylonians and the brutality with which the Babylonians dealt with Israel is horrendous. You read chapters 1 and 2 and you'll see some of the things that happened and, and actually later on after our text as well. They had laid siege to Jerusalem in 586 A.D. and and uh, or B.C. Sorry, and they um, and so the people were without food and without drink and without hope, and it was brutal. And so there's something here for us because if Jeremiah. Or the author, if it's not Jeremiah, if if he finds hope amid the sorrows that he has experienced and is currently experiencing, I want to know what is that hope. I want to latch on to that. And so that's why we're here this morning. Lamentations provides hope while we wait for that final day when all will be restored. The hope of heaven is certainly meant to cause us to look forward to that day, but like we're in this period of time now where, where heaven seems a long ways off, and it's hope, and it needs to inform us, but, but what about hope right now? What about, what about right now when I'm suffering, when tears are streaming down my face, when my friends are depressed, when, when they're filled with grief? What what, what now can we hope in? That this book is, it, it goes on, there's no resolution in this book. There's only one psalm that's like that, Psalm 88, and, and Lamentations is like that as well, although there's this pinnacle that we're in this morning, that we're just taking, taking a, a bite of this morning, but, but Lamentations ends with just, Lamentation. And so, when all that's left at the end of the book are questions and tears, and maybe you feel that this morning, Lamentation speaks of the path of sorrow or hardship and believing and trusting God while the darkness is very much overwhelming. Growing and knowing how to trust when the immediate future remains entirely uncertain. You, you, don't, you don't know how this is going to play out. I mean, you know ultimately, but you don't know how this afternoon is going to play out in your life. You don't know how tomorrow is going to play out. You don't know 
if your family member is going to make it. You don't know that you're going to make it because you're so discouraged. The questions we want to consider this morning are some of these. What, what do we do when we're faced with sorrow and loss in our life? How do we keep from sinking down under it all? How do we keep the sorrow and troubles of the past from poisoning the present and darkening the future? How do we find the hope to carry on while we wait for that final day? And it's the reality that if the author finds hope, I want to find what he has to be hopeful in my life as well. And so we're just going to look at verses 19 through 27 for a few moments together this morning, and there'll be tears along the way, and... and uh, um, listen, know the tears aren't because I'm in suffering right now. It's because I know many of you are. And I sorrow with you. I grieve with the pain that you're walking through. And you're not alone, though you might feel alone. The first point that I think our text makes that we can learn from is this. Dwelling on your sorrow will only increase your sorrow. Now let me say what I don't mean by this before I get into what I think I mean by this. It does not mean that you should not express your sorrow. Whenever you experience any sorrow in your life, it's good and it's right for you to express your sorrow for that loss. It just it is. It's dangerous not to express your sorrow. And there's no real rhyme or reason to the way you will express your sorrow or grief. There's no static timeline for how sorrow and grief is going to be experienced by you or by the person next to you. We just, you just don't know how people are going to respond to the sorrow of their life. Some sorrows may be briefer while others simply don't go away ever. And unfortunately, the church generally hasn't often handled sorrow and grief very well at all. And that's true for a variety of reasons that I'm not going to take time to go into this morning. But the fact is, God teaches us throughout the Bible that we may and we should anticipate sorrows and express our sorrows, especially and primarily to God in a lament. Kale had a great message on lamentation, on, on prayers of of lament a, a few years ago, and so I'd encourage you, maybe we'll put it in the sermon follow-up. I need Kleenex, um, maybe. I'm going to be snotting all over the place here shortly. Um, excuse me. So there's no period of time where God's word says, that people should get over something and move on. The simple truth of the matter is that we weep for a number of reasons, and we're called to weep with one another, and he just never, ever tells the weeping person to knock it off. Friend, it's good and right for you to express your sorrow. Jesus knew sorrow, right? The man acquainted with grief. God created us with emotions, and he created us with tears to go with them. So cry when you need to, talk about it with others, journal, write a poem or a song, draw a picture, and take it to God. Pray about it, lament to him, 
The whole book of Lamentations is that. So whatever it takes to express your sorrows and your griefs, give yourself and give others lots of patience, lots of grace along the way. We are very much learning as a church family how to lament. And uh, there's days of failure and days of success. So please know that what I'm saying here in this portion of this first point is, is not saying don't express your sorrow. There's no, no way. I'm saying express your sorrow. What I am saying, on, on the other hand, is that we should not dwell in our sorrow, sitting in our sorrow, living in our sorrow, soaking in our sorrow, expressing our sorrow as healthy, however we're able to express it, especially as we express it upward to the Lord who hears us and who is always with us. But dwelling on your sorrow, dwelling in your sorrow, um, it is just not healthy. And it only makes that sorrow greater, different. It increases it. The text indicates that dwelling on your sorrow will poison your life with bitterness. Verse 19 says, remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. And the writer is remembering his suffering. He can't get away from it. You know, when something's in your head, something's in your mind, something's in your memory, you can't just remove it. You just can't get rid of it. It's, it's horrific. He can't unsee what he saw. He, he can't put, a, put it aside. So he's dealing with memories, fresh memories and old memories, remembering all of his troubles, remembering his miseries, remembering his wanderings. Remember those people that he loved very much and friends and everybody who were laying dead on the streets of Jerusalem. Possibly remembering his straying from the Lord to whatever extent, and probably also remembering better days and grieving the better days that once were. This is no light affliction. There's uh, great pain and great lament and hopelessness as he sits in the memories. And, and again, take some time this week to read Lamentations, to sit in it and to, to slowly read it or, or read it multiple times this week and just sit in it and learn how to lament. He, he is struggling, but as he sits in the memories... Left to his own thoughts, as the images and sorrows are played on the movie screen of his memories, he finds that they are poisoning him like a bitter root. Wormwood and, and gall, both items known for their bitterness. So left to just replaying the bitter memories. When, when we're left to just replaying the bitter memories while we're laying in our bed or while we're sitting on the, on, in the car or trying to work or trying to have conversations, we're just sitting in those memories. While certainly understandable on the one hand, we are in danger of our minds and hearts being poisoned and our suffering increased. Bitter memories left to themselves, replaying over and over in our minds serve to poison your life, serve to poison your relationship with others, your relationship with your family, and your God. Left to dwell in the house of sorrow, we slowly become poisoned by bitterness. Dwelling on your sorrow will eventually then lead you to despair, depression, despair. Consider verse 20. Author says, my soul continually remembers it and it's bowed down within me. Interestingly, the language uh, in the book of Lamentations, those words are, are rendered uh, continually remembers. Um, the, the reality is those two words, continually and remembers, the way that they have 
rendered it is, is actually in Hebrew, it's remember, remember. It's these two different words of, of remembering. So it's, it's like he remembers, remembers them. Like he really is remembering them. It's this, that that he's, he's just sitting. He's just sitting in it. Can't do anything else to doubly remember them. It's almost tied to his very existence. It's like you can't remember, or uh, sorry, you can't not remember. You know, you can't not remember, and you see, just you just sit in the memory of it, and it just gets worse and and worse. The author states the result. He says, "My soul is bowed down within me. The, it, it's sunk down. It's it's weighed down." And isn't that an accurate description of despair and and depression? Weighed down by all your troubles, your afflictions, your sorrows. All you can seem to remember are the memories of the sorrow and the present realities of the sorrows. And as you live the seconds of your day in the memories and the present realities of the sorrow, it all just becomes too much. You start to sink beneath the load. And if you had a teddy bear, you'd go lay down in bed with your teddy bear and not want to get up. And once you start sinking... It's not long until you lose sight of hope and you finally give in to despair. Not simply just a middle-of-the-road kind of depression, if there is such a thing. It, it is absolute despair of your very life. Now, again, just to be clear, I'm not speaking of expressing your sorrows or even living as a faithful follower of Jesus, yet experiencing the realities of varying levels of depression. All sorts of faithful followers of Christ have walked through Weeks, months, years of depression and, and clinging to God, knowing he clings to them, which is part of this whole story here. So I'm not saying if you're feeling depressed that you need to knock it off, right? It's like reality is that we're, we, we, we are sitting in all sorts of complex situations. But to just sit in our struggle, to sit in our sorrow and just replay it over and over and over again, it just is going to create this bitterness and it's going to cause us to walk into despair and, and to great despair. And because of this, dwelling on your sorrow just cannot bring you hope. Simple truth is you cannot look up when you're looking down. You're looking at your feet and you're walking along slow as you can go, just trying to make it in the day and you just aren't able to look up. And you simply won't find hope by dwelling on or living in your troubles. For one enduring suffering and sinking down under the weight of it, finding themselves depressed and despairing of life, there is a primary guttural thing that is needed. And it's not necessarily, I mean, we think it's a removal of that thing, but what it is is it's hope. It's, it's just it's hope. Now, I'm not a big Wikipedia fan, but here's what they wrote as a definition of hope. Hope is an optimistic state of mind that's based on an expectation of positive outcomes with respect to events and circumstances in one's life or the world at large. That sounds generally right to me. Missing, missing a certain core tenet. But nevertheless, hope is this state of mind that one can have of expectation of positive outcomes. It's just how are those positive outcomes what are those positive outcomes? To order to find hope, in order to move from bitterness and despair to one of expectant optimism and positive outcomes in your life and all the world around you, you must arrive at a, a turning point in your life and experience, which is what we find in verse 21. When the author writes this, he says, in the middle of his lament, um, 
in the middle, middle of his lament, middle of all his difficulty, he says, but, 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 but this. So, so again, d- d- like this is not just black and white, black print on a paper. This, this is a real man who really is going through it. Something horrendous. And he says, in the middle of his despair, in the middle of his laments, in the middle of all the pain and all the sorrow, he says, but this I call to mind. And therefore, I have hope. Now again, please forgive the repetition, but I want you to remember, remember what I'm saying here. The author is not denying suffering. He's not denying or minimizing the sufferings that we experience. He is not rationalizing them away. He's not making any sort of statement that intimates that real people of faith don't struggle. He has endured so much. He has lost what seems to be everything. He knows his sorrows all too well, and he will return to his lament in just a few moments in the text. You know your struggles so much. You know the weight of your sorrows. And so does this guy. But now he makes a choice. He chooses not to simply dwell in his sorrows. He's expressed his lament, and again, he'll pick it up in a few moments. But but amid the lament, he chooses to remember something other, something greater than his suffering, to remember something that he believes that stands above everything. He chooses to believe that which he knows to be true. And because he chooses to remember this other thing, namely the faithfulness of God, he gains hope. In fact, what defines biblical lament is one taking their sorrow and complaints to the Lord in whom they trust. So this whole book, not just these verses, this whole book, he's trusting in the faithfulness of God. Even as he's complaining. What we come to to see in this text specifically from the very pen of a man who has endured and is enduring so much suffering is that if you desire to have hope, which all of us do, we must choose to remember, choose to put into action that which we believe about God. Specifically that no matter the situation that we find ourselves in, God is unchanging and utterly and lovingly faithful in every way, no matter how opposite it feels to your experience. So that's the second point, second half of the sermon, is choosing to remember God's faithfulness will bring you hope. Choosing to dwell in your sorrows will not bear great fruit, but choosing to remember God's faithfulness will bring you hope. So as we come to verses 22 through 27, we come to the pinnacle of the entire book in some way. It's at least, at least like a really high point. Uh, here we find that this severely troubled and afflicted grieving man believes that God is not only faithful, but that his faithfulness is great. So he, he, is, he is using these words. Is not, he, he did not write the song that we're going to sing in a little bit. He, he, he stated in the middle of his significant grief and turmoil, God's faithfulness is, is great. And God's faithfulness is shown in his great love for you. Verse 22, this deeply sorrowful man declares that the steadfast love of the Lord and his mercies never cease. The, the way the King James says it is this. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. 
If not for the Lord's love, if not for his mercies and compassions, we would be utterly consumed at the end of our rope, finished. Have you you ever been there? Maybe are you there this morning? Come to the end of the road. You see no future. You're without hope and you have nothing left to give. Your emotions maybe have been all over the place and right now you're just dull. You just don't feel anything towards God or towards people. And really, you just would rather be home in bed. Perhaps you feel absolutely consumed this morning. Consumed, like I think of the picture of like a fire consuming a log. It's just this slow burn, slow burn, slow burn until it's just ashes and it gets consumed. Verse 22 says that because of God's great love, you're not consumed don't have to be consumed or finished or at the end of your rope. His unchanging faithfulness and his love and merciful compassion speaks a better word than the despair you feel so keenly. And so a word picture here of compassion would have to do with a woman's womb, of the nurturing, the compassion, the love of uh, uh, the, the, uh, the proximity, the closeness, the oneness, the, the care, the tender care like a mother has for a child that she carries in the womb. And we know God to be powerful. We know him to be mighty. We know him to be holy. We know him to be just. Do, do, do we know him as the one who has tender, compassionate love for us in the middle of the sorrow that we're going through? Verse 22 again teaches a wonderful truth that while we may feel like we're at the end, God's faithful love and compassion for you is not. It never comes to an end. He, the picture that a friend of mine shows, uh, Jancy, did you put this picture in? By any chance, would you mind putting that picture in? It's in the, um, the hard drive. I just want to show this to you. And I think I've showed it to some of you before. There was a, there was a time when we were really um, wrestling. I was really wrestling uh, and during a different kind of struggle about 16 years ago. And, uh, and so the picture intimates, uh, has, has me at a desk with my, um, I'm just kind of leaned, leaned over. And, and she saw me. Um, she was a kid that was in our youth group in Iowa for a number of years. And she had come up and she saw and she realized that the way that, the way that I was feeling uh, looked, looked like this. So I don't know if it's going to be able to be up there or not, but it's, there's a picture of Jesus um, coming behind me and, and holding on to me. Even though my, hand, my, my, my face is in my hands, I'm wrestling with all sorts of things, but Jesus is holding me and loving me and near to me, and he is a tender, compassionate Savior. Um, when, it, when it comes up, just let me know. Um, when we're sorrowing, we are not alone. Our king is very much holding us. We, we may not understand the sorrow, but we know the Savior. And even when we, maybe in a moment or a week or a month or whatever, we don't even know what we can believe about the Savior because we're just not sure that he is as good as he says he is, he knows us. He loves us. He holds on to us. 
And we can be assured that God's mercies are fresh and new every morning. He has fresh, new, tender love for us. And it's not just as though it shows up every morning. It's just poetry kind of. It's just like it's just always there. It's just always going to be there for us. It's fresh, tender love and compassion for us. The love of God is more certain than the sunrise that we anticipate every morning. And do, do you believe that? None of us really wonder if the sun's going to rise in the morning. Always does, always has, always will, until the day Jesus comes back. More certain are mercies, tender compassion for all of us, not just those who are suffering, but especially that those who are suffering need to know that his compassions fail not. The hymn writer says, summer and winter, springtime and harvest, sun, moon, and stars in the courses above, join with all nature and manifold witness to thy great faithfulness, mercy, and love. Every day, every season, is a fresh reminder of God's steadfast, faithful, covenant love. And because of his faithful love, the author says uh, to himself, though all can hear, the Lord is my per- portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. The Lord's my portion, so I'll hope in him. For the author, the Lord God is the one whom he had been given. He had been given eyes to see. He had seen the faithfulness of God in Israel. He had known it himself. And for him, as he considered the steadfast, faithful love of God towards him, even when all around him was dark and difficult, and God seemed so very silent and perhaps felt so very distant, God and all his promises were more than enough for him. So the precise location where hope was found wasn't in the varied and difficult emotions or circumstances, but in the unshakable God, the God who is his refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble, Psalm 46, the God he believed in. He knew that though the days were dark and he just simply couldn't see that not only would the Lord stay by his side in the sorrow, but because of his faithfulness and his love, there was a day coming when the sorrows would be no more. And he believed that the Lord was worthy and sufficient uh, uh, to be his hope-producing portion even in these shadow lands when he awaited the glories to come. And so let me ask you this question. Who, Who or what is your portion what is it you are waiting for this morning in your suffering? Are you waiting for a healing, a change in circumstances, a better job that will pay the bills, for whatever is causing your sorrow to simply go away? Or, 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 or are you waiting on the Lord? Might you wait on the Lord? All, all, all the other things are, are fine. Certainly, we take them to the Lord in prayer, which we will in a few moments, but I want to encourage you to make God your portion. God, the one whom you wait for. Wait on him. Look to him because it's his compassions that will not fail you. You think about Isaiah 40. Right? They that wait upon the Lord will do what? Renew their strength. God is faithful in his great love for you, so make God your portion. Get to know him. Maybe take the We Believe series that we just finished and re-listen and look to God's word and see if that's the God you really believe. Do I believe in this one? 
Because to make a God up of your own opinion is far from hope. It's a fool's errand per se. But, but to trust in the God who has revealed himself in the heavens and in this book and in the person of Jesus most specifically, well, that's a sure and certain hope. True faith in a true God who truly loves you and has truly promised to be with you to the very end of the age. Now, when you choose to remember God's faithfulness in your lament instead of simply dwelling in your sorrow and sitting in it, you too will find hope instead of bitterness and in the gut-wrenching, lingering despair. I mean, the pit in your stomach is going to be there most likely. The, the, dis, the, the, the depressive thoughts of, of the pain that you experience may very well not be removed. But the Lord is faithful in his presence. The Lord is faithful in his promises. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Because he's faithful, you can trust him. And have hope, not only for your future, but for the difficulties and sorrows you face in the present. Strength for today. Bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. Well, finally, God's faithful in his goodness to you. He says in verse 25 through 27, the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It's good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It's good for a man to bear, uh, that he bear the yoke in his youth. And these verses speak of three ways that God is good uh, to us. He's Because he's good to us, because he's just good in himself, we can trust him. We can trust the Lord in our difficulty, no matter what's going on in our life, no matter the confusing situations. We can trust him because he is in his nature decidedly and perfectly holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, good. He can be no other. He is fully good, without stain, without blemish, without not just a little bit of irritation in him, without not just a little bit of, um, of uh, evil that, or vindictiveness that's just going to get back at you for something you did. Even when you may be tempted to think otherwise, when your situation is so very difficult, don't let your circumstances cloud the goodness of God. The goodness of God does indeed come running after us. This is there. This is what the goodness of the Father is. He's running to us. He's wanting to come alongside of us and, and come to Him and enjoy Him and rest in Him. And the one who's going through such sorrow like Jeremiah, unbelievable sorrow and difficulty, states amid all the loud sorrows and pains, and they are loud, aren't they? He states that God is good to the one who waits for him. And that's a statement of faith. And the one who seeks him, even as he pours out his lament and complaint to the Lord from where his help comes from. God is for us. Turn to Romans 8 for a moment. This won't be up on the screen. Romans 8, verse 31, second half of verse 31. We'll read for a little bit here. And suggesting in, in uh, putting this in a lamentations context, in your pain and your sorrow context, 
If God's for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Go to verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Verse 37. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present. Consider your suffering today. Nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is found in Christ Jesus our Lord. That truth, that truth, is where we see the faithful love of God most keenly. He who did not spare his own son for us, how will he not graciously also give us all things like his presence? Not necessarily the removal of the pain, but his presence in the pain and the promise of being with them through the pain, or you through the pain. We can trust the Lord in our difficulty also by learning to trust God's timing. Verse 26 says, it's good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It's good to wait quietly, to wait quietly for deliverance from the current situation you find yourself in. And I think what that primarily means is not like don't speak about it, and just like, hey, you need to like suffer yourself. It's, no, we're, we're talking about lamentations here, but he does say a little bit later in verse 28, he says, Let him sit alone in silence when it's laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Now, in the grand scheme of the Bible, we are called to bear each other's burdens. So, so listen, don't sit alone. You're going to want to sit alone when you're suffering, when you're struggling. Especially if you've been mistreated by people and told to get over something or not heard in some way, or whatever. We sit together. We do this together. But before God, I, I, I take this as, as this. Whew. Lord, I don't know what's going on. I, I don't understand. So I, I'm going to be quiet before you. Just lay, lay, lay out my prayers before you, but... I'm just going to stand in silence and, and say, you are great in your faithfulness, and I trust you. Though this is the hardest thing I've ever gone through. And I'm going to jump to the end here. There's a, a guy named Andy Squires that, um, that we follow, Joy and I follow, and, and our family follows and I would encourage you to follow him as well. He is a man who has really struggled with uh, his trust in the Lord. And he's a poet, um, songwriter guy. Um, and he says things that are a little edgy sometimes, but which you hear one thing. But I want to, 
this, this, this post, um, Joy sent me from Turkey, and, she's, and it's just like it was so keenly helpful for this situation because we need to choose to believe that God is good, that he is for us and he's not against us. That the foundations of hope and rest are in the Lord, not in our circumstances changing. Although our circumstances one day will fully change, right? So there's beautiful hope in that. But listen to what he says here, and then we'll close. He says, take all the inflicted splinters of practical atheism and put them up on the altar of God's silence and let God send his river of fire whenever he gets around to it. Is God silent? Let us receive him in his silence. Is God absent? Let us receive him in his absence then. And by all means, let us also receive him in signs and wonders and revivals and miracles as well. But maybe you're too tired to anticipate anything like that. It's okay. Jesus has a history of cursing unfruitful fig trees. Just stand still. Wait for him to walk by. He will speak to your branches. He will speak to your roots. And if he says, shrivel up and die, fear not, because what he's really cursing is the revelry of unbelief that has snuck its way like a snake into our hearts. I used to be afraid of judgment, but now I know that the judgments of Christ are what heal me of my wounds, self-inflicted or otherwise. Damn the life of unbelief and drink from the well of Christ himself. What other places are for us to go? What other recourse could we possibly find? A deconstructionist podcast? A nationalistic political movement? Someone's graduate degree in psychology? Please. I never want to be so clever that I lose my humanity, and by that I mean my hunger and thirst for God. So whether I am in brokenness or wholeness, I confess that the man Christ Jesus is my Lord, and I confess that he is Lord over all things, and all things are from him and through him and to him, and you can believe and confess otherwise, but really I don't care. I'm sticking with this old-fashioned and out-of-touch admission to steal from the poet Rich Mullins. I'll add, I did not make this confession. No, it's making me. Now, friends, I I know many of you are going through significant suffering. What is your confession this morning? Is your confession that God is great in his faithfulness, even amid the darkness? Is your confession that God is good towards you, even amid the painful experiences and very real hurts that have been done against you? Are you able to see that your only hope in this life and the life to come, no matter what your situation is or isn't, uh, is in the God who loves you? tender-hearted, caring for you, arms around you, loves you so much that he sent his son to live a perfect life in your place, to suffer death in your place, and then rise victorious from the dead and ascend to the throne of heaven with all authority and rule, who reigns today, who's with you today, who's poured out his spirit on you today, will one day return for you. And until that day, he's promised to be by your side all the way, every day, Every moment, never leaving you, never forsaking you, always caring for you. Thanks. That's the, that's the picture. You see the picture. That, that's, that's the picture in your suffering. All you can feel sometimes is the hands in your face and the tears dripping on your desk or in your bed or wherever. And he's just trying to make it through the day. But Jesus, King Jesus, is holding on to you. He's holding you. And he's calling you to find rest 
in him, to trust in him. Hymn writer summed up our hope as those who believe in Christ. He says, pardon for sin and a peace that endureth. Thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings, all mine with 10,000 beside. Even amid the worst circumstances, the worst scenarios, God is good. He is so good and he is faithful. And his compassions never fail. He is worthy of your trust. He is worthy of our trust. He's worthy of my trust. So will you trust him today in your sorrow? Will you trust God's timing? Will you learn to trust that God is not leaving you alone, not departing? He is strengthening you with his spirit, with his love, with his joy. He will not let you go. He's strengthening you. He's forming Christ-likeness in you. He's doing all this work for his glory. And ultimately, though it feels so very painful, for your deep joy. which does not equate with happiness. But it's a deep, settled sense of being loved and cared for and not forgotten. May you find hope with God this morning and this year, connecting what you believe with a life of suffering. Great is his faithfulness.